Adolf Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany on January 30, 1933. Hitler transformed the German Republic into a single-party dictatorship, which he calibrated to follow the totalitarian ideology of Nazism. Hitler ruthlessly cleared space for what he believed to be the superior Aryan race by weeding out supposedly inferior people groups throughout Western Europe. Some 17 million citizens were murdered, including 6 million Jews. Hitler's atrocities against the Jews have long served as a touchstone of theodicy. That is, a case study to understand the relationship between a good God and evil. In his book, Cross of Christ, John Stott writes of Elie Wiesel, a renowned survivor of the Holocaust who endured life in three concentration camps. On his arrival at Auschwitz at the tender age of 14, Wiesel was separated from his mother and his sister, never to see them again. In his book, Night, he writes, Never shall I forget the night, the first night in camp, which has turned my life into one long night. Seven times cursed. Seven times sealed. Wiesel tells the horrific story of a young boy. In his words, a child with a refined and beautiful face, a sad-eyed angel who was tortured by the guards and then hanged. Thousands of prisoners were forced to watch this little boy as he struggled for life at the end of a noose for 30 minutes. The guards then forced the prisoners to march single file past the boy and to stare into his lifeless face. As Wiesel neared the boy, a prisoner behind whispered, Where is God? Now, Wiesel recounts that he answered in his mind, Here he is. He is hanging here on this gallows. In light of such horrific evil, Yehuda Bauer, renowned theologian of the Holocaust, once said in an interview, and I quote, there's no way that there can be an all-powerful and just God. He can either be all-powerful or just. Because if He's all-powerful, He's Satan. If He's just, He's a nebish. A word of Yiddish origin meaning pitifully ineffectual and timid. The existence of horrific evil in this world leads some to conclude that there is no God. God is dead. Point to any corpse and there He is. For others, the presence of evil proves that God is either powerless, ultimately, or He is evil Himself for permitting what He does. But knowing as we do that the Bible is the Word of God, knowing that we are called to faith, 
in our God, the inerrant revelation of absolute truth which He has entrusted to us, as we put our confidence in it, we realize that these answers are entirely out of sync with reality. It's not a matter that they are answers that we don't like. We wish not to be true. They are answers that are indeed out of sync with what is. God's Word reveals this consistently. We have some perhaps who have not been with us through this entire series and the review will be good for all of us. But just very briefly to establish this point so that we don't just move on without doing that, God ordains and governs all that comes to pass. Lamentation 3, Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad comes? God says in Isaiah 14, As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Jeremiah writes, who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? In the broadest sense of the term, we know that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. But in the most narrow sense of the term, the lot is cast into the lap. The die is dropped on the table. The coin is flipped in the air. But its every decision is from the Lord. We've noted secondly that God's ordination and governance of all that comes to pass extends to every evil deed and catastrophe. After God releases Satan to harm Job, Sabaean and Chaldean raiders murder Job's servants and they steal his livestock. After a natural disaster snuffs out the lives of all ten of Job's children, God says to Satan, you incited me against him to destroy him. After Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers, he says, you sold me into slavery, but it was not you who sent me here, but God. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In 1 Kings 22, God releases a spirit to become a lying spirit in the mouth of Ahab's false prophets. And God says, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. In broad terms, Isaiah writes of God who says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. The Bible teaches clearly, not only in these texts that we lift out because they allow us to see very succinctly this truth, but in all of the fabric of the Bible, it teaches that no evil deed or event has ever come to pass that God has not ordained to take place. It's a bold statement in light of the horror of this world. But it's what the Bible says consistently. There is no evil that God has not ordained, that He has not determined will happen. And no evil deed that He does not ultimately employ for good. But, 
if it is true that God, endowed with absolute authority and power, still elects for evil to be, is He not the source and cause of evil? We've touched on this question more than once through the series. It's essential that we do at certain places reference it. But I'd like to investigate this matter in greater detail. And it's vital that we do so. Because if we've come to this confidence that God is sovereign over all things, it is important that we understand this matter, not just run away from it. I'll just realize that God controls all and I don't want to think about evil. That is not going to aid our knowledge of God. We need to come to understand who He indeed is. Our knowledge of God, our ability to love Him, hinge on this question and discerning it biblically. So we ask first of all, is God just in ordaining and governing evil? And we're going to trace through a number of passages. Some will reflect here on the overhead for you. Others will ask you to turn to as you have a Bible. But we're going to plow through a number of texts of Scripture today as we hone in on this particular question. As we answer that question, and obviously, is God just in ordaining evil? The Scripture would say yes. But we need to come armed with three crucial truths to grasp the answer to this question with integrity. The first idea that Scripture reveals to us, we must believe in the moral perfection of God's nature. God's ordination of evil must be balanced by a conviction that God is, in the very essence of His being, perfectly righteous and just. God always conforms to the standard of sinless perfection. Indeed, He is the standard of sinless perfection. 1 John 1.5, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. In John's writings, darkness is a metaphor for moral corruption and sin. And light is a metaphor for purity and righteousness. God cannot fail to conform to the standard of His moral perfection. There is no darkness in Him at all. Psalm 5.4 For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. How do we read this? When we see Satan soliciting God to have Job's servants murdered, when we see a demonic spirit putting a lying tongue in the mouth of Ahab's prophets, we should understand that God takes no delight in any of this. This doesn't thrill His heart. There's no pleasure in it for Him. For there's no sin in God. Habakkuk 1.13, you are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Do we get the idea from this of uh, the Buddha sitting there mesmerized with his eyes closed who can see no evil? is untouched by it. Clearly, this is not the God of Scripture. Genesis 6 and verse 5 says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and the Lord was grieved and judged the world with a flood. Does God see evil or does He not? Obviously here in Habakkuk 1.13, the idea is not that God turns a blind eye to sin or cannot bring Himself to observe it. God knows all. He sees all in that sense of the word. 
The point here is that God cannot take pleasure in sin. He cannot see it with desire. All sin is thoroughly repugnant to God. We think of soldiers torturing a young boy, hanging him and forcing prisoners to stare into his face. It is an evil that God sees at far greater depths than we could ever begin to see and imagine. If it is repugnant to us, it is infinitely repugnant to Him and His holy nature. He cannot see evil with pleasure. James 1.13 God cannot be tempted with evil and He Himself tempts no one. Verse 17 of that same chapter, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation. Everything perfect, everything good in this world, do we understand this? It flows from God. There's no independent source of goodness anywhere. He is the first cause and He is the direct source of all that is good. We see this even in our walk with Christ as He preaches at the Sermon on the Mount. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. To what end? That they will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We do the good works so that others see. Not to gain their attention, not in a prideful way, but that we may demonstrate the truth of God and the life in Christ. And then Jesus says, God gains the glory. Why? Because all goodness flows from Him. He's the source and the cause and the initiator of everything that is good. So we must believe in the moral perfection of God's nature. Again, lifting out these individual texts, but knowing that all of Scripture teaches this truth that God is holy and righteous and just and perfect in all of His ways. Because from His nature flows nothing but goodness. There is no other source. He is the direct cause of all that is good. Is God just in ordaining and governing evil? He can be nothing else. He can be nothing else but just. But with this truth, we add a second we must recognize the distinction between God's relationship to good and evil. This point is not very helpful to those who believe that God has nothing to do with evil. God orders and works with good things. He has nothing to do with evil things. But for those who understand what Scripture teaches about God's sovereign ordination of all that comes to pass, we need to be equipped with this point. We must recognize, yes, God controls all things, good and evil. He ordains all things. He governs all things with sovereign authority so as to accomplish His ultimate purposes. However, and I quote here theologian Bruce Ware, when God controls good, He is controlling what extends from His own nature. When He controls evil, He controls what is antithetical to His own nature. This distinction is crucial. Let me say it this way. God is always the direct cause and necessary source of good. 
God is never the direct cause, the agent, the source, or the doer of evil. Ever. He cannot be. Evil, as Augustine noted, is rather the absence of good, or the misuse of good, or the distortion of good. Evil comes in at the distance from God. Jonathan Edwards helped us tremendously here with this illustration. He said the sun brings warmth and growth. Jonathan Edwards wasn't alive today in Minnesota, was he? (laughs) There's no warmth or growth and there's a shining sun out there. But we know the point. The sun does bring warmth and it does bring growth. But if the sun sinks behind the earth, he writes, the absence of the sun brings cold and death. You see then, the sun is not the source or the fountain of darkness and cold and death. It doesn't produce those things. But darkness results from the sun's absence. And so it is with God and evil in this world. God could have so ordered circumstances in the garden that Adam and Eve would not have eaten of the tree. But God in His wisdom and in His freedom chose to withdraw, permitting Adam and Eve to disobey. Where is God when the serpent is tempting Eve? God is everywhere present. We know that. But as He labors with Adam and Eve, He is withdrawn in this particular situation. The sun of His glory, of His presence, of His goodness, sets. And the cold and the darkness come in. On the one hand, God did not tempt them with the fruit by waving it in front of their faces and saying, you can eat nothing else but this. But don't do it. He doesn't create Adam and Eve starving to death and then telling them that they cannot touch this fruit and the only food that there is to eat. On the other hand, He does not post angels with flashing swords to guard the forbidden fruit. God chose to withdraw and thus to place in the power of Adam and Eve the ability to choose to obey Him or to disobey Him, thus proving their love to Him. He could have ordered it differently. But this is how God chose what God ordained to take place. So it is true that God could prevent evil, but that He chooses to permit it. It is not true in any sense of the word that God takes delight in evil or is in any sense its source or its fountain. So we must hold in faith to the moral perfections of God's nature. This is the only message that is revealed about Him. And we must recognize this distinction between God's relationship to good and evil. Yes, He ordains evil. Yes, He governs it. He is not its source. It is, in a sense, and just by way of illustration only, His withdrawal that allows the opportunity for sin in the lives of His creatures. Thirdly then, we must discern the dual sense of God's will. 
I'd like us to look at several biblical examples which demonstrate God's providential permission of sin. So as we go through these texts, look for how God permits. We could marshal a number of others. But God does not, as we think on this, passively permit sin in the sense of making a general decision to let people sin. And then God kind of intervenes now and then when things really get out of control. He sweeps in and creates a miracle to sort of keep things going forward. Not in that sense. Rather, God actively permits sin. Notice this in these texts. He knowingly releases sinful beings to do what they want to do in concurrence with His sovereign purposes. Each of these texts illustrates this concurrence of sinful human will merging with sinless divine will. Now we've looked at numerous texts like that in the weeks past. But we're going to look at these texts by God's grace to illustrate another key point, And that is this dual sense of the will of God. It comes out quite clearly in these passages. So please notice God's will as He permits people to sin. Actively permitting them as He ordains and governs. The first example as we look at this dual sense is the judgment of Eli's sons. I invite you to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. Beginning at verse 22. We look at the priest, Eli's sons, at a time when the tabernacle stands as a place where God's people come to worship Him. Eli is a priest, as are his sons. In verse 22 we read, 1 Samuel 2:22. Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. This is the place where people are to meet with God. And here these sensual young men are having sexual relations with women at, the ta- at this tabernacle. The God was seen. And He says to them, verse 23, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. I'm not happy with what I'm hearing. In fact, verse 25, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? You're in grave danger here. Notice now what the commentator says, giving us a look behind the veil of God's purposes. But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Why would they not listen to their father's voice? We could answer it numerous ways because of their sensuality, their self centeredness. These are willful young men who do not want to be told what to do. They want to make their own enjoyment and entertainment out of the things of God in sacrilege. But what the text says is it was the Lord's will to put them to death. 
Now let's turn to Ezekiel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel toward the end of the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 23. Ezekiel 18 and verse 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Verse 32 of Ezekiel 18. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Now what misses us in the English translation here, and it's a fair translation of the Hebrew words, but what misses us is that the word translated will, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death, is the same Hebrew word that's translated pleasure here. So if we take that word and make it in English one word, which it is in Hebrew, God wills to put these men to death. God never wills to put the wicked to death. Which is it? Have we teased out a contradiction in Scripture here? God wills to put these young men to death. He does not will. to execute the godless. Case study number two. David's discipline for adultery and murder. 2 Samuel chapter 12. We find ourselves in the context here of David's adultery and murder. He is confronted in chapter 12 by God's prophet Nathan who says that what he has done is he's committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed her husband Uriah is godless and wicked. And he says to David, chapter 12, frankly, I don't think we'd say some of these things. Notice what he says. 2 Samuel 12, 7, Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house Here's what we wouldn't say. And your master's wives into your arms. And gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in His sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now as we understand Scripture, and particularly in light of later revelation, David's committing adultery with the wives of Saul. I put those wives into your arms. Or at least we could say at this point that David is involved in polygamy. Is this God's will? According to Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, this is not God's design. There is nothing in Scripture that indicates that His design is for one to have multiple wives. And yet God says, I have put this man's wives in your arms. Verses 11 and 12, it continues. Thus says the Lord, 
Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, what you've done with Bathsheba, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Now we might say on one level, David's involvement with Saul's wives was after Saul was dead. His involvement with Bathsheba was during the life of Uriah. And Absalom, his son's adultery with David's wives, takes place while David is alive. It's adultery. And yet God says, I will raise up this evil against you. I will take your wives and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives. I will do this. Again, we're coming to understand how God does this. He is not the source or the initiator of such evil. But knowing the circumstances that will surround Absalom, knowing his orientation and his bent, knowing his sensuality in some level on this, though I think that had less to do with it than we might suspect, but knowing all of these circumstances, he knows what Absalom will do in broad daylight. And so it is right for him to say, I will take your wives and give them to your son. I will do this thing. God, who never wills adultery, Exodus 20.14, you will not commit adultery, wills to permit Absalom to commit adultery. Well, what is it? Does he will it or does he not? Samson's lust, Judges chapter 14. Judges chapter 14 and verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His hormones are the only thing really talking here. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among our people? Read Israel. That you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Hear the hormones speak again, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. He wants her body. She pleases me. She's attractive to me. It does not matter to him God's will concerning intermarriage with the Canaanites. We looked at that at great length last week. He just wants her. Now at this place, you're watching this take place from your spectator's position. What do you see? What we see here very clearly is this sensual, selfish, willful young man. He does not want to be directed. He does not want to be guided by his parents' moral direction to him. All he sees is a young woman who looks very good to him and he wants her. That's it. What we see is a godly father and mother with aching hearts. But at verse 4, God pulls back the veil for us again and permits us to see what He is doing as he navigates Israel's history by employing Samson's lust. Notice verse 4. 
His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. God who does not delight in the death of the godless wills the death of the godless. God who does not take delight in sensuality permits this young man to express himself. He wills it. And he doesn't will it. One more case study, and that is persecution. Let's turn to 1 Peter 3, and then if you'll also find 2 Thessalonians 1. 1 Peter chapter 3 and 2 Thessalonians. We'll be at 1 Peter 3.17 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Looking first at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 17, we read, For it is better, Peter writes to these suffering Christians, to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You may suffer because it's God's will. Verse 19, chapter 4, I'm sorry, chapter 4 and verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Who suffer, notice the phrase, according to God's will. Now let's turn to 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 5 where we read, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Very clearly, according to the will of God. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction." away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Does God will the persecution of His people? Yes. Is He its cause, its source, its initiator? Not at all. He will bring vengeance and judgment on those who persecute His people. Now, as we put just these four examples together, they lead us to an understanding of the will of God in Scripture. And it's important that we discern this as we work through that understanding. There are two senses to the will of God in Scripture. The first is His will of decree. In this sense, God's will is determinative. God's decree happens. God's inviolable sovereign rule over all things renders it certain that what God wills, will be. In this sense, God wills the presence of evil and employs evil to accomplish His purposes. He doesn't cause it. It doesn't come from Him. He doesn't initiate it. He finds no pleasure in it. But He rules sovereignly over it, decreeing that it will be. The second is God's will of desire. In this sense of the term, God's will is expressive. He wills what He longs to happen. 
we speak here of God's moral yearning expressed in His commands. In this sense, God never wills sin. Now we really understand this quite clearly in our own life. It really ought to make click with us and make perfect sense. Because from all appearances, you all got out of bed this morning. Did you want to? Well, there's two, two answers to that question, isn't there? Uh, yes and no, I didn't. As the alarm went off this morning for me, I wanted to stay a whole lot longer. I did not want to get out of bed. I did not will to get out of bed, but I willed to get out of bed. I had to decree it this morning. <laughs> there was no desire. 19-year-old daughters on break from college. An out-of-town friend invites her to come to spend most of the break with her. And she breaks this news to her father and mother who really want to see their daughter, but they say, go ahead. Well, they, they, they do not will for her to go, but they do will for her to go. They have no desire that she leaves. They want her to stay with them, but they decree that she's free to go. And in fact, she does. A head of state is compelled to write a decree of execution against the traitor for whom this governor has deep affection. I don't want to do this. I don't will for this to happen, but I do will for it to happen. Or as I've said so many times in our experience, come in. It's time to go to bed from a beautiful summer night. You will it, but you don't will it. You don't want it, but you decree it. And so it is with God. God yearns for absolute purity at all times, far beyond what we could ever desire. We look at God ordaining and governing evil and we wonder, is God good? Is God good? He understands good in a way we never can understand it in our sinfulness. God never desires sin. He longs for His creatures to honor Him but for His greater purposes and in His inscrutable wisdom, God has chosen that sin would be. We understand this as we come to recognize that God is absolutely pure, the source of all good. As we come to recognize then that His relationship to evil and good is different. And as we see this dual sense of God's will... He wills sometimes what He doesn't will. He decrees what He does not desire. And so then I think the great question comes, can we trust a God who ordains evil? As the Word of God is taken at face value and worked out, it is very clear that God reigns sovereignly over all evil choices and governs them to accomplish His ultimate purposes. That is very clear. But the question comes, do we trust Him? He's just in what He does, but do we want a God who ordains evil? Can we trust such a God? I think we can, first of all, because we know that He is good. And we must cling to that in faith, discerning His goodness, understanding it, and knowing then, of course, we can trust Him. 
We can trust Him, yes, because we know His ways are higher than our ways and His thoughts than our thoughts. We should not expect to understand good and evil as God does. We can rest in His purposes. In eternity past, God saw every possible universe. He chose this one. He freely chose, in accord with His infinite wisdom, with His power and His freedom, to generate a universe in which Adam and Eve would choose evil and He knew all of what that would mean. He chose as the best of all possible plans this world with all of its horrors. We have no experience in running a universe. We, have, we do not have full knowledge of goodness. We have no insight in how to best display the glories of God for all eternity. We could not write such a manual. We have no sense of how best to create love for God in the hearts of creatures that will last forever and ever. What we have to do is trust Him. His ways are above our ways. His thoughts above our thoughts. But there's one place where He does give something of an answer. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Can I trust this God who ordains evil? That depends in some degree as to why He ordains it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. We have a glimpse at why here. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. As finite beings, we have no concept of how temporal suffering relates to eternal glories. The evil in this world is evil. God knows that better than we do. But we have no concept of how these evils will relate to eternal glories. We're finite beings. What we do know is that it is temporal. He calls it indeed the slight momentary affliction. That's not dismissing the trials that people face. What that is, is a God of glory knowing what is in the future, knowing of the eternal glories, comparing them to all of the suffering and heartache in this world and saying they don't compare. Now all we tend to see here in our sin and in this fallen world is the evil and the wickedness of people and our own sin. But seeing it all in light of eternity, God says this is all a slight and momentary affliction in comparison with what is to come. We shoot fireworks up against a dark sky that we might better see the pyrotechnics. The glory and the splendor of it would not be nearly the same if the sky was light. In His wisdom, God knows that this veil of tears and sorrow and suffering and death and torture is necessary for eternity. Why? We'll never understand, perhaps. But we can trust Him. 
Can I trust this God? All that I've said to this place I think is logical and I think is honorable biblically, but I don't think it's complete without this last piece. Yes, I can trust Him because God drained the cup of evil for us. He tasted it in its fullness. Wiesel claimed that the little boy hung by German soldiers was God. God dead at the end of a rope. Wiesel was wrong. But he was a bit closer than he thinks. For one day 2,000 years ago, God in flesh did die. That sinless face hung on a cross. And God in flesh was dead. We serve a God who took the curse and endured in Christ the eternal night for sinners. He took the curse and the punishment of our sin and He died in our place to pay that penalty. Jesus was seven times cursed and seven times sealed. He bore this curse for sinners. And the tomb, seven times sealed, could not hold Him. For He rose from the dead, conquering death by experiencing it. Conquering death by rising from the grave. But Jesus, as He hangs and dies on the cross, cries out, Why have You forsaken Me, My God? Why have You forsaken Me? That we would never have to make that cry. He drained suffering. And in an eternity of suffering, He bears the curse and then defeats that death that He might give to us life. We can trust Him. We're not dealing with a God who knows nothing about suffering and trial, but dealing with One who has tasted it in its fullness. God-forsaken curse. The judgment of all sin. How sadly ironic that so many people spend all of their lives determining whether or not God is just in the courtroom of their own heart. Asking if God would permit this. Is He good? Is He powerful? Is He dead? And all of these debates skirting the issue of our own sin. The greatest evil that we will face in this life experientially is in our own hearts. We can live in rebellion against God, judging whether He's right or fair or good or has done this the best way possible. Or we can come to terms with our own rebellion against Him. There is no evil in Him. There is much evil in us. And so, with mercy... In nail-scarred hands, Christ opens His arms and calls us to repent and to trust Him. I may speak to someone today that what you need to do is look full into the face of Christ on the cross. To see that it is your sins there for which He suffers. 
to see in Christ the risen Savior, the giver of life and forgiveness and mercy. To see that is here on the cross where God shows His absolute justice and His mercy as the justifier of those who sin. Those who trust Him for salvation. And for those of us who know the wonder of this salvation, it is for us also a life of repentance and trust. To put our confidence in the One who is absolutely just and who demonstrates that in the death of His Son and who is the justifier of those who trust Him. Is God just? Is He trustworthy? The ultimate answer is the cross of Christ and the resurrection of our Savior. In this, we put our hope, our trust, and our confidence. Let's bow. Father, what horrifying evil we face in this world. But Lord, we know that Christ has paid the penalty of our sin. And in this, we rest and trust. I pray in behalf of anyone who does not know Christ as Savior and pray that You will bring them to a place of reconciliation. That they would see their sin for what it is and see what Christ has done to pay the penalty. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, I pray, Father, that we would cling to this message and know that You indeed ordain evil, ordaining even the death of Your Son that You might give us life in His name. We rejoice in this and thank You. And in the midst of horrific evil, say that You are King of kings, Lord of lords, sovereign God who rules and ordains and controls all that takes place. And we rejoice to say that You are good, just. And we rejoice the justifier. We praise You in the name of our Savior. Amen.